Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or two million, Atlassian software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Episode 102, the atomic number for Nobelium, the Queen's Gambit cleaned up at the Emmys. I love that show as I can watch TV and yell, move the horse, move the horse, and I have no idea what that even means. <laughs> go, go, go! Welcome to the 102nd episode of the Prop G Pod. In today's episode, oh my God, I'm brimming with excitement. I am literally, uh, this is big. This is big. Today, we speak with the one and only Anderson Cooper. And in addition to being, you know, kind of the, actually Anderson Cooper is, is the most trusted living journalist in the world. I've read that in several places. We hear about his experience covering the news throughout the past two decades, specifically as the anchor for CNN's Anderson Cooper 360 and a correspondent for 60 Minutes on CBS News. Anderson also shares his thoughts on fatherhood, overcoming personal tragedy, and what he's learned while researching his latest book, Vanderbilt, The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty. Uh, So this plays a key role for me because my co-host on my other podcast, Kara Swisher, is always bringing the heat to her sway. When I say heat, I mean really good guests. And I landed Anderson Cooper, and I did not share it. I am not a giving person. He is all ours today on the Prop G Show. I've also gotten to know Anderson a little, little bit. We're not friends. We're friendly. I don't want to overstate our friendship, but he's just an you know when you meet sort of people you admire? And I have found most of the time I'm a little bit disappointed because I create this image of them being kind of superhuman and you find now they're just as kind of awkward and uh, strange and, you know, as all of us. Uh, Anderson uh, meets that bar. You meet the guy and I've been thinking, as I say in the interview, a lot about masculinity and what it means to be a man and uh, to have discipline. And also I've been thinking about a lot about stoicism and to be a warrior and save more than you earn and protect others, and uh, don't feel as if you need to respond to every slight. I, I just think this guy demonstrates a lot of behavior that young people, and specifically young men, uh, want to model. And so I just have a lot of you know, respect, admiration uh, for Anderson. So anyways, I'm thrilled to have him on the show, and I think this is one of, I don't know, one of the more meaningful interviews we've done. He's a very... Uh, a very thoughtful guy. Anyways, with that, uh, we typically do a top of the show where we, where I rant about some business issue, usually involving uh, big tech. This week, we're not going to do that because we want to play the full interview. 
with Anderson Cooper. Anyways, anyways, here we are. We're going to bust right into our interview with Anderson Cooper. Anderson, where does this podcast find you? I am in my office at CNN in New York City. So, got to be honest, as always, I'm, I, everyone's very excited to hear from you, but I'm going to turn this back to me. You are my revenge guest. You, you literally... <laughs> what, is, what does that mean? <laughs> Don't worry. It's not, it's not as scary as it sounds. <laughs> so, Kara, Kara and I share a podcast, Kara Swisher, and then she has hers and I have mine. And she'll get like the deputy commissioner of PBS Cultural Affairs for Pivot, and then she gets Tim Cook for Sway. <laughs> And I actually bring, I think, pretty interesting guests on Pivot. And I'm like, that's it. That's it. I finally got you to agree to come on. I'm like, I'm taking him to Prop G. So you're my Tim Cook. She I has see. Tim All Cook. Right. I well, have Anderson Cooper. That's good. I know Tim. I'm, I, I would be lucky to be in his company. Yeah, 100%. So uh, we're, we're going to get to your book. But first off, uh, I want to talk. That old trick. That thing, that thing, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, we're going to talk about your book. Come on. <laughs> Sorry, boss. I've used Sorry. that line a million times. I'm, yeah, I'm going to get no. your book in a second. But. You get it. You get it. Yeah, we're, no, we're really excited about your yeah, book. Yeah, anyway, no, sure. uh, so uh, I've been reading your bio, and I didn't realize you joined CNN in 2003. Is that right? I did. Yeah, actually 2002. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, okay, I actually, so, CNN called me the day after 9-11 and asked if I could go to Afghanistan. And... Uh, I think it was the day after or two days after and uh, it took me I, I couldn't immediately go but yeah i tried to then i mean i mean you're really a ground zero for for media and what's happened with streaming and you know polarization i'm just curious to get your take uh, looking at it through the you know kind of behind behind the music if you will if you did a behind the music <laughs> broadcast news as told by Anderson Cooper, what are the seminal changes since when you joined the news 20 years ago as an anchor I mean, the speed of, obviously, I mean, it's, I don't think I'm, you know, the speed of stuff, the speed of information, the speed of reaction times, the, the, the trajectory of stories is just exponentially greater. You know, we, I, a lot of people look back and they think of this sort of golden age of news back when mm -hmm. it was Walter Cronkite and, and, you know, it was a newscaster people trusted and all America trusted. And, you know, he was an incredibly respected person and for good reason. Um, but, you know, news back then was, I think the original CBS broadcast was like 18 minutes long I, um, or, or thereabouts, became a half hour program. But, mm -hmm. you know, what was actually covered was very limited. So I, I just think the ability to, to be places uh, is just extraordinary now. The logistics of it, it's remarkable what we see. I, you know, I'm not sure it's a good thing I think it contributes to this feeling that I think a lot of people have of the world is an incredibly dangerous place and more dangerous than it's ever been, even though, in fact, uh, you know, COVID aside, it's actually not. All by all metrics, things, you're less likely to die a violent death than ever before. But we see right. all this stuff in ways that we haven't before. The whole business model also is is obviously, you know, has evolved. You know, I don't know what the future holds on streaming. Obviously, that seems to be where every company believes the future is. People have been talking about the death of the evening broadcast news for as long as I can remember, um, yeah. and it's still around. But uh, I don't think it's part of the, the conversation as much as cable news is. And what do you think the media gets wrong when you see a story or you see a way that, that you're approaching a story or the network's approaching a story and you think, you know, this isn't accurate or this is bad for society? Are there any things that, that bother you, not necessarily about CNN, but about media in general? We well, think I mean, that term media is so broad that yeah. I, I always hesitate to like 
you know, make sweeping comments because, you know, media incorporates everybody from, you know, some far right talk radio person to cable. uh, I, you know, I think, look, um, things that are stories, uh, get more attention than things that are, are not, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the story right now of the, the young woman who was blogging and podcast, uh, you know, making videos and who's now disappeared and her Mm -hmm. fiance is suspected and has, has disappeared. You know, that's a story which is getting a lot of attention. And mm-hmm. um, there's other obviously missing people who do not get that same amount of attention. And I think one of the reasons beyond, you know, they're not on a, Instagram. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, there is a racial component, ob- yeah. you know, yeah. uh, sadly, which has been much discussed over, you know, many years in a lot of these cases. But there's also a, a component of, you know, when there's video of this person's journey and when it's a story, you know, those are all things which affect coverage and mm-hmm. for, for, for better or for worse and that people make people feel connected to stuff. You probably have interviewed the most influential, powerful people in the world of any living gener- journalist. What surprises you or what has surprised you the most, uh, if you can make a general statement, or I'm just curious if there's individuals that just shocked you? Because I always thought the most interesting, some of the most interesting parts of interviews when I go on TV is what happens before and after when you're off mic. And I think sometimes people don't understand or don't have a real a real understanding of the individual um, uh, other than their media presence. Has anything struck you about powerful people off mic or that we don't understand about them? Are there any specific examples where you think, you know, this people really don't get this person? Powerful people. They're just like us. Yeah, one, um, pan, one leg at pants, one leg at a time, right? right. Uh, you know, they're, okay, from my perspective, people are either far more impressive than they are in, than, mm-hmm. than the public perception of them or far less impressive. Um, I am struck repeatedly by just how generally more interesting people are as just as human beings beyond what you think they're going to be. Um, mm-hmm. but also just how kind of human people are. I, I, I still hold on to this thing where I think in this culture, we, we imagine like the rich or the super wealthy or the super, you know, successful or powerful that they're somehow have some secret that, I mean, I, I still hold on to this idea that, well, they must have some sort of secret that I don't know. In the same way that I grew up believing, you know, adults had some sort of knowledge or secret that I didn't know. And then gradually, as you grow up, you realize they're just flailing around like everybody right, else. Right. And I find that interesting. And it, to me, it sort of humanizes them. Mm-hmm. The thing about, uh, you mentioned people, you know, talking to people before and after the interview. I don't really do that. I'm not interested in being friends with a lot of the people I interview. It's not my job. I don't want to be socializing with them. I don't go Mm -hmm. to parties with them for the most, you know, I mean, I've been to a few, I guess, uh, over the years, but I don't go to the White House, you know, Christmas party or whatever people get invited to. That wasn't you at the Met Gala with a dress that said Tax the Rich? That wasn't you? I went once to the Met Gala and realized it was not my cup of tea. No, you're um, But like the White House correspondent dinner, I don't want to be socializing with mm-hmm. all these people because I just don't think it helps my coverage of them. It, it, I want to, I don't want to, I don't, my job is not to be friends with them. It's to, to ask them questions. It's, it's so true that uh, I write a lot about famous tech people and the first thing or one of the first things, I'm not exaggerating, like 50% of the CEOs where I've written about their company negatively, they reach out and say, hey, Scott, I'd love to have coffee with you. Hmm. 
And it's not because they're interested in me. It's because they're very smart. And to get to that point, they're usually very charming, likable people. And I find that when I meet them, I like them, and I'm less inclined to, to, to write in an unfiltered oh, totally. fashion about them. Absolutely, yeah. I find yeah. it harder to have a tough interview with somebody if I yeah. know, you know that them. they have a very sweet child or, yeah. you know, what, whatever it is. I'm not easily malleable, but I, I do, I am impacted by walking in somebody else's shoes. I really do believe in that. I don't have such strong, I'm not somebody who, you know, wears their opinion on their sleeve and is yelling at the top of their lungs in anger every night on cable news. I don't like to watch that as a viewer. I don't want to be that person. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't necessarily think that someone who disagrees with something that I might privately believe is a bad person. I'm willing to believe maybe I'm wrong and I'm interested in hearing why they think somebody's wrong. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This week on The Gray Area, Professor Diana Posulka and I tackle one of life's biggest questions. Are we alone in the universe? What would it take for you to step off the agnostic ledge and say, yeah, aliens are real? Is it a spacecraft landing on the White House lawn? Well, something that was anomalous in 1952 did fly over the White House. And that's one of those cases that is still weird. (laughs) That's This Week on the Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. So I want to I want to walk in your shoes, or I want I want our 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 listeners to walk in your shoes, and this will be a good segue into your book, Vanderbilt: The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty. You're you're not a rich kid; you're a rich great 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 grandson. You have this <laughs> crazy legacy um, that I sort of knew but didn't understand. But to the extent you're comfortable, you had what I would describe as a fairly uh, atypical uh, upbringing. Oh, really? You think so? I thought my upbringing is very relatable. A skosh. Just (laughs) a skosh. And and also... You you mean your mom didn't have Charlie Chaplin's fertility drugs to her body so she could smuggle them into the United States and give birth to me? uh, That's called a Tuesday for me. That's me coming back from a visa, boss. Um, But you've had a lot of... uh, You had a lot of privilege. You had a decent amount of tragedy. Uh, I, I think when people see you, they think that they see this sort of... I don't know, almost porcelain doll of you. You kind of seem fairly <laughs> like stab him with a fork and see if he bleeds because you just seem so together and you just seem very well balanced. And yet I look at your upbringing and the privilege and some of the tragedy. I'm like, it's kind of a semi-miracle this guy isn't pretty fucked up. Can you, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about the influences on you growing up? I know you're very close to your mom and what it meant to grow up with that privilege and some of that tragedy. But when you look back and say, these were sort of the defining forces in my life, the really big influences, have you, have you thought about that? Is there anything you're willing to oh, share? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, the, you know, I grew up with uh, the first 10 years of my life were very different than the latter uh, afterward. I divide my 
my life in between the first 10 years of my life and then the rest of my life. And when I was 10, the calendar was kind of reset. It was like, it was like when, you know, the Pol Pot took over Cambodia and reset it to year zero. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at 10, my dad died. And that was for me a huge uh, chasm opening up and a complete change in how I viewed the world and how I viewed myself in the world. And it was for me kind of a, a wake up call that, you know, I don't think for necessarily for better changed the trajectory of my life and changed the person who I was. I think the person I was before then was much more interesting and open and outgoing. And I became much more reserved and very uh, catastrophist and, and wanting to prepare for what I believe would be the, uh, you know, the next catastrophe. And so for just a question, do you remember much about your father or your relationship with him? I remember, you know, I I remember him being a great father and I remember the warmth of him and the talk, you know, I remember putting my head on his stomach when I would watch TV at night and uh, I remember the like the beat of his heart and I remember the sound of typewriter keys writing as he was writing books and articles because he was a writer. Um, a lot of the actual memories I don't really remember. Uh, he did write a book about his family growing up and about my brother and I and my mom and the family that he created with her. Uh, and that he wrote it as a letter to my brother and I, because he knew he probably wouldn't live to see us grow, uh, grow up. Um, and so a lot of my memories come from that book and I can't even separate what I actually remember, remember, and what I just know from reading that book of things that happened. Um, but that was enough, like 10 years with him was enough to give me a foundation. That is what has carried me forward through the rest of my life. Um, and afterward I became you know, I suddenly didn't really know my mom when my dad died. She had been working all the time and was often traveling. And uh, I suddenly was with her and, you know, began to under- figure out who she was and realized very early on that she didn't have a plan, mm-hmm. um, which she later, you know, opened, I never asked her, but it was very clear to me. And she talked about it later in her life with me a lot. Uh, and she, I realized there was nobody like with their hand on the rudder. And, um, I decided I needed to be that person with my hand on the rudder. And so at a fairly young age, you decided you were sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, the man of the house. I was her protector. Like I needed to vet, you know, the people around her. I tried to give her advice uh, on dating, you know, from everything from guys to financial stuff, even though I know nothing about financial stuff. But I would read stuff like not spending money is making money. Mm-hmm. And so I would try to like, I had conversations with her about that. And of course, which we both knew at the time, I was 13 or so, she wasn't going to stop spending money because that's, it was just part of her makeup. Something to do with her last name. And you have more tragedy in your life. You lost your father and then you lost your brother. Yeah, I didn't, I mean, I know where they were, so I, I don't actually lose them. But, Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I like that you inject humor into that. Yes, I but I'm gone. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, my brother died by suicide when uh, he was 23. He jumped off the balcony or sort of left off the balcony of uh, our apartment building in front of my mom. And so I was 21. And, you know, and that too, obviously, was shattering for, you know, for her, particularly witnessing for me. Uh, and again, sort of, it brought, certainly brought my mom and I a lot closer together. Um, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd always been very understanding of my mom and protective of her um, and certainly became more so after that. But you know, I, I, I set about a course very early on of saving money and working uh, from the time I was, I don't know, 12 or 13, because I 
I figured one day I'm going to need to, you know, support people in my family and, and uh, build a stable life. And I need to start as soon as possible. Did you ever, was there ever a moment where you think, okay, my dad died at 10, uh, which is a tragedy, but, you know, dads and moms die. Right. Your brother dies, which is not only a tragedy, but it's just, um, I mean, that's just sort of, that, that, there's no way to get around it. It's a profound tragedy uh, that's unexpected. Did you at any point think, okay, uh, from the outside, people see our last names and imagine a world, uh, but we're, you know, we're somewhat cursed? Did you, did you have a fear of, of, of insecurity and fear, or was it motivating? There was a ton of fear about, it was certainly after my dad died, uh, fear about, you know, my mom uh, drank, which she was uh, open about as well. Um, and, you know, if you grow up with somebody who's drinking, it, you know, it, it's uh, up and down. You don't know what, when you open the door, coming home from school, what the situation is going to be. And, and, um, so the, yeah, there was a lot that was unstable. And let me just preface this by saying I had a tremendous privileges. I was growing up in a very nice house. My mom was, mm-hmm. you know, making lots of money and I don't want, you know, I'm not like selling a sob story. All of this for me was incredibly motivating. It was incredibly motivating. I think some people are, are, are sucked under by tragedy. Some people are unable to to use it as propellant, um, but I, I absolutely used it as, as a fuel initially, I mean, unconsciously, but it definitely fueled me forward just as it did my mom. My mom, I think the best thing I ever, you know, got from my mom was this sort of this ability to push through and really through work and rely on work to get through anything. And I think both my mom and I had that. They've done a lot of studies on uh, success, and one of the keys to success is resilience. Mm-hmm. And have you thought about what were the attributes that you and your mom had or the influences or upbringings or values that turned tragedy into a catalyst as opposed to a lot of us just get stuck? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think rage has a lot to do with it and like mm-hmm. anger about what doesn't seem fair. To, you know, it's like the, there's a poem my mom and I forgot who wrote it, but there's a line in it about the hard-hearted heart of a child. And mm-hmm. I, I remember that feeling of, you know, being a little kid with a very hard little heart and uh, full of rage at, you know, losing my dad and having, you know, a situation that I would have preferred to be a little bit more stable. And, you know, I think my brother and I both grew up in the same home, the same circumstances. He ended up... Uh, taking his life, dying by suicide uh, in a very shocking way in front of my mom. And, uh, you know, it's always interested me how two people growing up in the same home, the same forces at play, one doesn't make it through and one propels themselves through. And I think he and I had different strategies. And my strategy was I set about a course of study on it's going to sound ridiculously overly dramatic, uh, but on, you know, survival. I started taking mm-hmm. survival classes, courses in the wilderness when I was a teenager. I left high school early. I rode in a truck across sub-Saharan Africa for six months. Weren't after, you planning on being a Marine at some point? I was interested in the military. I was interested in, uh, uh, I interned at the CIA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was interested in a lot of jobs where you couldn't be gay. So mm-hmm. would, none of them would mm-hmm. have been careers. I mean, CIA at the time, you couldn't be gay. And, yep. at, uh, you know, in joining the military, you couldn't be gay. So I realized after a while, it's not fruitful or wise to go into a career where you have to uh, lie about who you are. And 
uh, being gay, did that, was that a moment or, I don't know, I just don't know how to articulately put this. Has that been a source of fire? Has it been one of those uh, things that in terms of obstruction or challenges that has been a fire or a catalyst? Uh, and I would imagine you've seen huge changes uh, in the opportunities in your industry over the last 20 years. But um, your own sexuality, what role has that played uh, or has it in your in your career, your motivation, your resilience? Yeah, I mean, it was early on when I was a little kid. You know, I probably knew I was gay when I was six or seven. And, uh, you know, when I was a teenager, I wasn't really happy about it because it was inconvenient and difficult. Mm -hmm. And I certainly, I was growing up in the early eighties in New York city and, uh, my mom had tons of gay friends and there were, you know, people dying of, of AIDS and, um, the future looked pretty bleak and mm -hmm. I really wanted, dreamed of having children one day and I, it didn't seem possible or having a family and getting married and all that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, I, I wasted a lot of years, like my teenage years, like wishing I wasn't gay. And, uh, and yet I read a lot about, I started reading as a teenager, a lot of, you know, gay history and, and I got annoyed. I got annoyed mm -hmm. that I was wasting time worrying about this and, uh, being upset at myself about it. And at a certain point, really probably it was really probably the year I graduated college. I'd had a boyfriend all through college and I was just like, this is a waste of time. I'm not doing this anymore. And I really embraced it. And, um, and that was the best, one of the best decisions I ever made. So the book, Vanderbilt, The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty, you wrote with a uh, historian. And yeah, Catherine Howe. Catherine Howe. And I found that the most interesting part of the book, quite frankly. I just gave me a sense of what the world was like. And your great, great, great grandfather was kind of the Jeff Bezos of his age, Cornelius Vanderbilt, uh, success story, um, uh, you know, very modest beginning and became the wealthiest person in the world. What did you, uh, were you going to comment on that or? No, yeah, uh, right. Wealthiest I mean, yeah, person I mean, in the world? I, I went into this thinking he was a sociopath and- yeah. Because I'm really interested in sociopaths. I think there are a lot more mm -hmm. sociopaths. I mean, studies have shown there's a lot more sociopaths than we really, you know, we, <laughs> it's we only think It's a key component of, of being a CEO, just it, FYI. I, do th I think that's true. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think there's, you is. know, we only imagine serial killers, but there's a whole no. world of, like, well-known people. They just modulate it better. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so yeah. that's what, that was sort of my my initial thought of going into it. I've, I've stepped back from that because, I, you know, one can't, you can't psychoanalyze somebody who's who's no longer around. Um, but he himself described a mania for money from a very young age. He dropped out of school at 11, started working on his dad's boat, got his own boat at 16, tiny little small boat to ferry supplies from Staten Island to New York, and built a steamship empire and then moved into railroads late in life, uh, built a, building a railroad empire, founding Grand Central Station, um, yada, yada, yada. And yeah, died with $100 million, which was more money than was in the U.S. Treasury at the time. And then his son, who he had made fun of his entire life and mm -hmm. his son finally tricked him in a business deal and outsmarted him. And that was the turning point where Cornelius Vanderbilt looked at his son and said, Oh, you know what? Maybe he has something. He's the guy who's going to inherit all the money. And his mm -hmm. son doubled the fortune or more than doubled it. To Which is unusual. Point. It's usually the son that loses it and the grandkids who make it back, right? Yeah. Well, in this case, it was the grandkids who then just started spending it because they wanted yeah. to push into New York society and they mm -hmm. were far away from the making of the money and they just became entitled. And mm -hmm. 
so yeah, I was, I was interested in like how this figure comes out of nowhere to create this empire. And what did you, working with Catherine, what did you find most interesting about that period that was different about creating a dynasty versus what it would be like today, the, the folks creating, amassing huge wealth? You know, to me, I, I was fascinated by New York, even in the six, you know, the first Vanderbilt came in like the mid 1600s. He was an indentured mm-hmm. servant. He was a poor farmer from Holland. And the, the Commodore is born, or Cornelius Vanderbilt, who becomes known as the Commodore, is born at the end of the 1700s, dies in 1877. That whole period is just fascinating. I mean, New York in the 1600s, um, the, you know, some of the first people who were brought to, to New York in the 1600s by the Dutch West India Company were 11 enslaved Africans who helped mm-hmm. them build uh, the settlement. And there's a, I'm just the history of enslavement to people in old New York, in Dutch New York, is really uh, fascinating, uh, awful. And the history of that time were of the lack of, you know, regulations, the lack of taxes, the lack of, you know, in the Commodore's life, there were not the same kind of regulations. And he was able to be cunning and ruthless and and really, he didn't want to just, you know, win over people who were challenging him in business or or he felt it cheated them. He wanted to destroy them and he would set mm-hmm. about doing that. And there's a quote from him saying, you know, I'm not going to sue you because the legal system takes too long. I'm just going to destroy you. And, you know, that's what he had the, the capabilities of doing with the kind of money he had. He was not a nice guy. He was awful to his family. And that pathology, that mania for money, I've, I think, and Catherine and I write that it infected all the previous, all the next generations of, of Vanderbilts. That, that, that pathology played out in their lives in a whole bunch of different fascinating ways. It sounds like this, I don't know how you'd respond to this, it sounds like there's an analogy to the Trumps, that the, fathers, the father's sort of weirdness, aggression, toxicity, quite frankly, that, that DNA kind of carried on. How did that manifest itself in future generations? Well, I, the, I mean, the Commodore's kids, he didn't care about women. He had mostly girls. He didn't care about them because they would not inherit the Vanderbilt name because mm-hmm. they would be married off. They wouldn't be allowed to be buried in the Vanderbilt mausoleum because only people, mm-hmm. only men could be buried in the mausoleum and only a man that had the last name Vanderbilt. So he didn't really care about the, the women and his sons, he was brutal to until the one kind of showed a spark of Hit business back. savvy in, the, yeah. in probably in his 40s. And then that's when he started to elevate him. Uh, his other son uh, died by suicide, shot himself in the head. He was secretly gay. He had epilepsy. The, the commoner thought that was a sign of weakness, had him committed twice to what was then called lunatic asylums. Um, you know, he was really tough. And, and his son, Billy, who inherited all the money, you know, ends up in a huge legal battle with the, his brothers and sisters because they believe that he tricked the commodore into giving him all the money when in fact, I mean, the commodore wanted to keep all the money together because he knew that if he broke it up, what would ultimately happen would happen, which was it gets diffused and then ultimately disappears. And then the subsequent generation grew up in this incredible world of entitlement where, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the riches of the Vanderbilt, I mean, I, Bezos is, is probably a good parallel just in terms of the size of the fortune and how insane it was at the time. You know, Bezos' fortune is, un, it, it is unimaginable. Uh, the Commodores as well, you know, one in every $20 in circulation in the United States 
if you had taken it out of circulation, that it belonged to Commodore Vanderbilt. Coming up after the break. What interested me was being a place where the language of loss was spoken and where life and death was very much was there. And it wasn't fake conversations. It wasn't, you know, talking niceties. Every conversation was was raw and real. And it was one of the first times I felt anything in probably since the time my dad died. Stay with us. It seems like every wealthy family really is sort of a mix between succession and knives out. You and I don't know each other uh, well, but we know each other. And it struck me that we both have sort of a similar story where we sort of took or felt responsibility for the financial well-being of our mothers. And I came at it from a different lens, but the emotions were exactly the same. And I would say with rich people, generally, you find that rich people are living hand-to-mouth. They're just living hand-to-mouth on a higher level. Mm. And there's the same level of that dysfunction and stress and, you know, the functional families are the ones you you don't know. When you do this research and you really look through your past and you were talking about, you know, the, uh, the difference between uh, your brother and you and different paths. Uh, the thing I found, um, and, and you'll see this, I think, um, with kids is it's an argument for nature versus nurture. Because the only thing that you know when you have two kids is they're going to be totally different. When you look at the genetics or the things that have been passed on through your family and you spend time documenting it, was there any decisions or realizations about the DNA you've inherited and any actions you want to take or any, has it, has it changed the way you approach life and things you want to modify or modulate for or things you've discovered in yourself and you think, I want to, I want to expand on that or I want, to, I want to modulate it? It certainly confirmed the decision that I consciously made as a little kid. I mean, I may, you know, I probably didn't make it consciously in the sense of like, I, I knew the problem with the Vanderbilt. I just sensed that whatever my mom had come from was not healthy and good. And I, I had a mo- I had two models to, to kind of look to my mom and my dad. And I looked to my dad and I made that mm-hmm. decision early on doing all this research certainly confirmed for me a lot of the choices I made because it looked to me that the choices that the, you know, subsequent each generation of Vanderbilt and each individual in that family made, it was impacted by the money. And for me, I, from a young age, convinced, I told myself, whatever money your mom has is not going to last. It's Mm -hmm. not going to be there. And you should just discount it. Do not get used to your mom has, I looked at it as my mom has a very nice house that I'm living in. This is nothing, this is not mine. And it's not never going to be mine. And I need to build my own house one day and I need to figure out how to do that. Um, and so that was my mentality. And I think that was a healthy mentality. I don't think it was a happy mentality, but mm-hmm. I think it was a long term. It played out well for me in the sense of believing I needed to work hard. And, you know, I mean, I started child modeling when I was like 12 or 13, which is a ridiculous thing. But, you know, there's not a lot of things when you're that age you can do. And, I would go every day on these go-sees after school and, you know, there were other kids there with their parents and I was just by myself and, um, you know, I was a weird little kid. Uh, the other, you know, other thing that it's been confirmed, you know, confirmed my dad, my grandfather on my mom's side died of alcoholism at 45. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was guzzling absinthe and on his deathbed, you know, his esophagus exploded and projectile vomited blood onto all the walls. I mean, it was not a happy ending. 
Uh, It certainly has confirmed my early on decision not to drink. I mean, I'll have occasionally a glass of wine, but I don't don't think I come from a, a line of people who should drink. It's a, I've always admired people who come from some degree of wealth who use that as a motivation because to, to be blunt, I didn't come from wealth and that was what was motivating for me. I think if I'd been raised in similar circumstances to you, the only two things I know I would have had in my life as a young man is a Range Rover and a cocaine habit. It just, <laughs> I think people who come from some level of wealth and manage to be motivated, and I mean, you basically... Uh, and I am blowing smoke here, you decided to like pick up a handheld camera and head to war zones as a means of establishing credibility. That was sort of your first job, wasn't it? Yeah, I, it wasn't actually, uh, yeah, that's how I started reporting. It wasn't as a means of establishing credibility, though. It was, I, I wanted to, I mean, I talked about, again, I don't want to sound like, again, I had an incredibly privileged upbringing. I don't want to sound like I, you know, crying here about, oh, what was me. Um, but in my child view, survival was a real issue. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, my dad didn't survive. My brother didn't. And uh, that was a real fear of mine. And I, uh, you know, started doing survival courses and out of college, I just decided it would be best for me to go to war, some to go to war zones or, and understand how people survive and like, see if I, how do, how, what would happen if New York, I always wondered, I need to prepare myself for if New York is attacked and there's a war here, how will I make a living? What will I do? Mm-hmm. These are the kind of things I thought about when I was a kid. Child so started, model. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. I knew child modeling would not work in a war zone. So I started going Fuck, to- Your second career. That's your fallback, child yes, model. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, so I, I wanted to go places where this was happening and understand how people survive and learn other people's stories about how they survive. And-, and Becoming a reporter was one, was the only way to kind of do that other than joining the military, which I couldn't because I was gay. So um, that's what I did. I, uh, my friend made a fake press pass for me. I borrowed a camera and I started, snuck into Burma. I hooked up some students fighting the government. I ended up in Somalia in the famine, Sarajevo, uh, during the siege of Sarajevo in Bosnia in the early 90s, Rwanda in the genocide, Haiti a lot. Uh, you know, I wanted to go places where I could understand about life and death and the line between the two and why some people survive and other people don't. And what were sort of the key moments or figures in your career? So you're going to war zones, you're a reporter. When you think, look back and say, these are kind of the two or three moments that got me or, you know, kind of really were step changes in my career. What were those things? I snuck, so I did, I snuck into Burma, hooked up some students fighting the government, uh, then lived in Vietnam for a while, going to school and shot some stories. And then I ended up in Somalia in 1992 in August, uh, in this before like Black Hawk Down, before the U.S. military, you know, landed in Mogadishu. Um, and I shot a story in a small town called Baidoa. And that story ended up airing on a thing called Channel One, which was a mm-hmm. uh, thing created by Chris Whittle, the Chris Whittle, yeah. And was in about half the high schools and middle schools in the United States um, at the time. And that, for me, just, I, I didn't know at the time that that was a big turning point in terms of my career. I knew mm-hmm. that it was a big turning point in, in my life to witness um, horror on that scale and starvation. It was the first time I'd seen a child die uh, in front of me. It was the first time I'd seen, you know, that level of, of death. And the horror of that was a huge impact on me in terms of wanting to be like when that happened uh and i remember the moment i was in a a small hut 
of made out of twigs and a kid had died uh, while I was there. And it was his mother and father washing his body before it would be buried in a mass graves. Um, and this was their last child. He was five years old and they didn't have any more kids. And I, I was, uh, I was like, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to be forever. Like I want to be where real things are happening. This, you know, it wasn't some frivolous story. It was, this was life and death. And I wanted to document that and tell, be there and bear, and just bear witness to it, even if it didn't change anything. It's strange because the thing that's the contradictory forces here are you've described yourself as someone who thinks a lot about catastrophe, uh, in some ways when it comes to money, risk averse. But then I hear a young man who has a lot of options deciding to go to Somalia in the early 90s. And the term I would use for that is fucking crazy. It's almost like, are you an adrenaline junkie? No, I mean, there's not definitely, at all. No. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, uh, first of all, you said I had a lot of options in my mind correctly or not, that is not mm -hmm. how I viewed it. I did not view, mm -hmm. I viewed it as I have no options. And this mm -hmm. is actually the only option I can think of uh, to actually forge a life that would in be interesting and valuable to me. I didn't think I could make a, I didn't know I could make a career out of it. I didn't know I could get paid to do it. Um, in my mind, there was no plan B. It had to be this. I don't know if that's a good or bad way to look at things, but that's how I, how I looked at it. Um, but I, adrenaline there, yeah, there certainly is adrenaline, but it's, for me, it's not so much adrenaline. I mean, I've had moments of intense adrenaline of like, uh, covering the, you know, elections of Mandela in South Africa. And in the run up to it, there was a lot of violence between the, I, uh, in kind of freedom party and the ANC. And I was in a shootout in downtown in a demonstration where there were snipers shooting into the crowd. And that was in terms of adrenaline, one of the most adrenaline filled experiences of my life. Um, but that's not what interested me was what interested me was being a place where the language of loss was spoken and where life and death was very much was there. And it wasn't fake conversations. It wasn't, you know, talking niceties. Every conversation was, was raw and real. And mm -hmm. I, it was one of the first times I felt anything in probably since the time my dad died and I wanted to feel stuff. And you were talking, one of the, the, the lovely things you said about your dad, and I'll summarize, is that you don't remember a lot about your father, but you can feel him. You mm -hmm. can feel his heartbeat, you can feel his touch. How has that impacted um, your behavior or some of the goals you have in terms of your own fatherhood and the relationship you want to have with your own son? It, yeah, it's completely my guidepost to everything with my son. I mean, um, I, I am so in love with being a dad and was so in love with this little human being. And as you said, mm -hmm. I completely agree with you on the whole nature versus nurture thing. I mean, he's all there. Like there's, yeah, they his come character to is yeah. already 17 months old and just, you know, he has a sly smile and a sly sense of humor. And I know this and it's extraordinary to me. And I'm so excited to see more of who this little person already is. And I just don't want to, like, I just want to help him along and not mm -hmm. mess him up. And, um, I wanted to give him, you know, I, what my dad gave me was a sense of stability in a time I wouldn't ordinary, I wouldn't otherwise have had that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I want to create a stable platform for, for my son and, um, present him with options and show him a lot of different things and see what sticks and see what he's interested in. And, and, uh, and it, the other thing my dad did and my mom did too was, 
they included my brother and I in on everything. We were, mm-hmm. we weren't shunted to a children's table at parties. You know, uh, I remember going to a Thanksgiving meal at a relative's house and they had a kid's table. And I remember looking at my mom and dad being like, are you kidding? Like, I'm expected mm-hmm. to sit, we're, like, we're expected to sit at the kid's table? No way. Uh, and what do you, when you think about, I, I, I mean, you spend the day kind of highlighting everything. I don't want to say highlighting everything that's wrong with the world, but like if, if it bleeds, it leads. And I would imagine, I, I find being in the media sometimes, I just get, I have to shock myself into not being cynical and not just kind of shaking my head all the time uh, because, you know, things are reasonably good and getting incrementally better doesn't make much of a good headline. When you come back from, a, 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 you know, a day of talking to people about vaccine hesitancy or climate change or autocracies, and you see this little boy, are, are you hopeful? Do you feel really protective? Do you feel like I've got to kill it and leave money and protection for this kid or this kid's opportunities, you know, the world's going to get better? What's your outlook? Well, I do believe the world is only getting better. Um, I mean, I, I don't believe that every single day. And there are days I, you know, I'm incredibly depressed. And obviously in the last, you know, the last administration and, and you know, the times we live in and, the, and, and this administration, you know, the extent to which people are following laws and conspiracy theories is terrifying and, and very sad. Uh, but I also look, you know, I love history and I mm-hmm. look at the history of America and there have been conspiracy theories for a long time. And, and the whole QAnon conspiracy theory is really just a regurgitation and reinvention of age-old anti-Semitic tropes that have been around for hundreds of years. And so uh, it just got a new spin on it. As for like the idea of leaving money, I was very glad my parents told me early on, you know what, there's not a pot of gold waiting for you. And we, even if we don't believe in inherited wealth and college will be paid for, and then you're going to be on your own. And, and that's, the way we view it should be. And I am so happy about that. I'm so mm-hmm. glad, you know, William K. Vanderbilt, my great uncle who had inherited, you know, I don't know, tens of millions of dollars and did nothing with his life and forced his daughter to be married off to some British Duke for, but the only reason was to a penniless British Duke to get a British title for some ridiculous society reasons. Um, you know, at the end of his life, he told the New York Times, you know, that, that inherited wealth is like cocaine. It's, it's as bad as cocaine in terms of sucking your initiative. And I really believe that. I mean, you look, you talk about the Trumps. I mean, you know, Downey Jr. and Eric Trump, uh, I don't know that they have much money, but because uh, I don't think their father is of that mind frame, despite him inheriting lots of money from his dad. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't, you know, what have they really done? Other than, you know, I mean, they're, they're in their dad's shadow. They followed him into whatever branding business he's been in. And, you know, the same really with, with Ivanka Trump. What, I, in terms of your own professional career, I, I find that when you kind of, you, you're younger than me, but we're sort of the same generation. That I always found kind of when you hit your late 40s, you do start to think about, quote unquote, the end. <laughs> and that, that time is finite. Whereas when you're young, it thinks time is just this amorphous thing that will go on forever. Professionally, what boxes are left for you to check when you? And I'm going to ask you not to say, "Well, I want to be doing the exact same thing." If you can, if you can resist <laughs> saying that, in ten years or looking out, what boxes professionally do you want to check that are, are still not checked? Um, well, just very briefly, I always thought I'd be dead at fifty because my dad died at fifty. So when right. I hit in my forties, I thought uh, not only did I think about the end, I was like, "The end is nigh," you know. And here it uh, is. 
Yeah, I'm done. I, I was fully, I mean, that, that's- Maybe my I entire, should try cocaine. I got six I months you, left. I, I told you there was no plan B. Right. My plan was I'm going to go as hard as I can and, and drop dead at 50 because that's what happened yeah. to my dad. And I just want to live an interesting life till then. And then I hit 51. I was like, oh my God, I, now I can- What I, now? What now? And I'm still a little bit in the what now, except in terms of career, um, the idea of just raising my son is a really delicious and glorious idea to me. And so mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have the same ambition or the same need that I had before I had a son. I hope, I, I will hope I'm alive 10 years from now, and I mm-hmm. hope uh, I am deeply involved in the life of my son, even though he'll be 10 then and probably starting already to not really want to be around me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have an answer of what I seem. I don't know what 10 years even looks like. I don't know what, yeah. is it all, you tell me, is it all streaming services? Is it all, uh, who knows? Bob, what, do you look at something? Oh, I'd like to do that. I'd like to have, you know, I'd like to do, uh, be in a, in a fictional scripted series on Netflix. I'd like to produce a movie. I mean, what would you think that I would could, be a kick if, in the if ass? If I could have been the person who made Succession, that yeah. series, I would, that I would love. Yeah, if I could have yeah. made Gamora, which is my yeah. new favorite uh, yeah. series, um, I th- that would be great. If I could, you know, continue for 60 minutes and that would be, you know, telling uh, stories and traveling around and doing things and covering breaking news for CNN. All that is, that's like, uh, that's like life. I, I don't, I, it does not feel like work in that sense. Um so I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. I'm sorry. So as we wrap up here, uh, what advice would you give to young people just starting out in their career? What advice would you give to your younger self or to our younger listeners professionally and personally? Um, well, I'm not going to say uh, follow your bliss because I know mm-hmm. you have written mm-hmm. about what bullshit that is. And that's only what rich people say, uh, <laughs> which, uh, which I actually agree with you on as somebody who my mom told me to follow my bliss. So... Uh, you, you, right <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I believe in work. I believe yeah. in really working hard. And yeah. if you can be the first one in, and if you can be the last one to leave, if you don't have children at home, mm-hmm. um, you should be that person. You mm-hmm. should not be the person that is the last one to come back into the office after the office has reopened. You should be mm-hmm. early on uh, I have a friend who's the CEO of a company and he said to me that he was in the office the other day and he was riding the elevator with somebody who he'd never seen before, but who worked in the company. And he turned to the person and said, oh, you know, what do you do here? And the person explained what they did. And he got out of the, the CEO got out of the elevator and he called up the, the HR department and said, I just met like this rock star in the elevator who's great, who's really good and motivated and, you know, I'm mm-hmm. really pleased that this person is here at the company. And the fact that was that person and the CEO probably would not have had an interaction had it not been for the fact that this young person decided to come in and be there and do the job. Um, and I think careers are often made in very serendipitous moments because you're there on the scene. I was only, mm-hmm. you know, I was in Somalia when something was happening and that's how I was able to get a story. And so... Um, I think you want to put yourself in a position where serendipitous moments can happen and where you can be noticed for the hard work that you are doing. So quick lightning round. So favorite band, favorite music? Uh, Elvis Costello. I mean, that's oh like my, my God. That's the like 80s. my first. Well, like the Armed 80s. Forces, yeah. 
but I'm also <laughs> a huge Madonna fan, so. There we go. Um, uh, so you said Gamora, favorite piece of media, best moment, most inspiring moment. Oh, I mean, my son, yep. waking up every morning is the best, best interview. Moment. Best interview you think you've done when you thought, when you like finished the interview, you thought that was, that was something I want, I want on my professional tombstone. Uh, I did an interview with Stephen Colbert about, uh, where we talked a lot about grief. And mm -hmm. to me, that was, that was a really good, interesting interview. Who you would most want to be friends with that you interviewed that you're not friends with? Wow. Um, I've never interviewed Molly Shannon, but I really want to be friends with Molly Shannon. I love Molly I like Shannon. That. Yeah, she's hilarious. Yeah. Two or three people you've interviewed you think are going to change the world, like you think that for looking forward are going to have There's a huge a guy impact. Named Alexander McLean, uh, who, who mm -hmm. has an organization called Justice Defenders, and I did mm -hmm. a 60 Minutes profile of him. And I just think he's one of those people you meet and... I mean, I don't want to say holy, but he, mm -hmm. I mean, he has a very strong religious faith. He, he justice defenders, he came up with this idea uh, to uh, create a paralegal programs where prisoners teach other prisoners to become paralegals inside the prisons. Some who are really motivated, he helps them get uh, correspondent law degrees from the University of London. And he has graduated dozens of inmates who are currently imprisoned in prisons throughout Africa. And they are helping tens of thousands of other inmates get access to a, a fair hearing. They may be guilty. Mm -hmm. They may be innocent. This isn't just like helping innocent people, but everybody he believes deserves a fair hearing. And I think it's a model that's extraordinary. And I think he's extraordinary. Uh, I think something you really don't like about yourself, you're trying to change. I say, um, all the time. I, that annoys me. I say, I mean, and that's no. your biggest weakness is, um, I'm highly critical of everything. I'm working of on my, my selfishness and narcissism. You're working on um. <laughs> All right. I anyway. embrace my selfishness and narcissism. <laughs> You're leaning into it. You're yeah, leaning. I, mean, I like point. me. I like me full stop. All right, boss. Well, I don't know how you're going to take this, uh, but what little I know of you, I've been thinking a lot about masculinity and I, I'm trying to define it because I think that society has incorrectly conflated masculinity and toxicity. And loosely speaking, I think that masculinity is someone who demonstrates skill and strength to garner the resources and influence to protect and fight for others. You're one of the most masculine people I know. <laughs> I'm being very serious. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. I mean, you know, I don't know what my T-score is, but... There uh, you go. Yeah. Well, mine's going up, but we can talk about that <laughs> on another show. T-therapy, my boss, I would, I, I would recommend it. Anderson Cooper is an award-winning journalist and the anchor of CNN's news broadcast show, Anderson Cooper 360. Anderson also serves as a correspondent for 60 Minutes on CBS News, and his latest book, Vanderbilt, The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty, is out now. Also, very strong like bull. Strong like bull. Anderson Cooper. Anderson Cooper. Thanks so much for joining us, boss. I really appreciate you know what? I'm uh, you so glad this. it was just you and not that Kara Swisher. Hello? That's right. My revenge guest, Anderson Cooper. Stay safe, my brother. Thanks for All doing right. this. Thank you. Algebra of happiness. Uh, one of the secrets to my modest success, simply put, is rejection. And rejection is a forward-looking indicator of your success. Simply put, if you're not getting rejected a lot, you're not going to be that successful. Why is that? There's a myth that everything falls into place all the time for people who are successful. No, as a matter of fact, I think successful people endure more rejection than most people. 
Uh, I was given the opportunity to read for an original scripted series on Netflix as, wait for it, the asshole partner of a firm, of a services firm that everyone's scared of, and they thought, this guy will be great, and I read, I bombed, and they said no. Uh, And what does that mean? That means at some point, I am going to be on an original scripted program. Why? Because I am starting to get rejected from a lot of stuff in media. I also uh, tried to get one of my books turned into a movie, and it got optioned, and then fucking nothing happens as it as it never does for LA and me. But anyways, my point is at some point, it probably will be made into a movie or a scripted series because I'm getting rejected a lot. I ran for sophomore class president, junior class president, senior class president in high school, then student body president, then 10th grade senator. I ran for basically every office. And the only thing that happened every time was that I lost. I tried out for baseball. I tried out for football. I tried out for basketball. I was cut from all of them. And guess what? Guess what? That is the key to my success. I've always been able to get rejected, to mourn, and then to move on. And the fact that I got some rejection from this Netflix drama, okay, I learned from it. I should have practiced more. Um, I'll do better the next time. But if you are not being rejected a lot, it means you're not going to be successful. There's something here around meeting people too. The reason I am partnering and raising children with someone who is, quite frankly, more impressive than me is that I was always willing to go up to strangers and begin speaking to them. And sometimes it's humiliating when they don't receive you warmly. But here's the difference between being someone who complains about the woman making 500 grand a year selling Oracle database software is she either played with the wrong toys or the right toys to endure rejection. The key to your success is rejection. Our producers are Caroline Chagrin and Drew Burrows. Claire Miller is our assistant producer. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Prop G Pod from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you next week on Monday and Thursday. My mom told me the story of... uh, My my mom had dated Frank Sinatra for a bit, and uh, they remained friends for the rest of their lives. And my mom- I love that you just roll that out there. My my mom had dated Frank Sinatra for a bit. Well, uh, she, my mom yeah, got around. You and I had the same upbringing. Very yes, similar. I, very, again, it's a very relatable I upbringing. I, I love that.